The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Get you uh, set up with the knowledge you need to know. Now, if you're looking at contacting Martin and his team at the firm, if you're having issues with your disability insurer, maybe they've cut you off, threatened to cut you off, asked you to, uh, you know, appeal their decision, it can be a uh, massive collection of headache for sure. So the deal is you just reach out to Martin and let them uh, talk, let him talk to you. And if something needs to be uh, carried forth at that point, he'll take care of it with his team. And to do so, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca for email, which we are going to get to very shortly. Thank you so much in advance. If you sent one along, it may appear on this show uh, today or at a future show for sure. That and Martin, we're going to get to five things to know about LTD that insurer may not have told you. We're pulling back the curtain on this sucker, which is always good to do and expose them and give you again more knowledge. So we can either dive into that or if you got a uh, week that was pal to share, we can, uh, we can kick off the show with that. Your call. What do you think? You know what? I think what we'll do is we'll incorporate some of the week that has been into these five issues that the insurance may not have told insured people. So I'm happy to just dive into that. Okay. Well, the uh, the first one we got lifted here is the phrase totally disabled. We've talked about this. The phrase totally disabled can be incredibly misleading. It only refers to your inability to perform the essential duties of your occupation. That's it. Give me some details on that. You know what? This is a good one. And as I said, I'll incorporate some of the week that was um, into these five uh, points that we have today. And one of them would be people often ask me, you know what? I've been diagnosed with diabetes. Is that a disability? Or I have a headache disorder. Is that a disability? Or people may say, I've got schizophrenia. Is that a disability? It is important to have a diagnosis, yes. But the most important thing is functional impairment. You have to prove that because of restrictions and limitations that you have, because of your condition, that you cannot perform the duties of your occupation. So looking at this first point that we have today, the phrase total disability or totally disabled, what does that mean? In the everyday sense, when you hear that, it sounds quite serious, right? That you are totally disabled, meaning for many people that they would think that you are completely unable to do anything. You cannot manage your activities of daily living. You may be bedbound. You may even be comatose. Right? That is not the actual meaning of total disability when we look at disability contracts or policies that you have through your employment, through a group insurance policy, or that you may have gone out and purchased yourself. The phrase total disability, as we say, is misleading because it means literally that you must prove that due to a condition or a disease or an injury, you are unable to perform the essential duties of your occupation. And if you've got a change of definition later on, the essential duties of any occupation. It does not mean that you cannot manage certain other things. For example, if you have a mental health disorder like anxiety and depression, does that mean that you are completely unable to tie your shoes, your shoelaces, to prepare dinner or to do other things like drive? Not necessarily, right? So it is not a test. I've spoken to doctors about this in the past as well. We have pre- um, present presentations to various clinics on this issue to educate 
doctors and treatment providers as well, because when they see this phrase total disability, and I've had people say this to me, we did not understand that in a disability contract, it was referring only to your ability to perform duties of your occupation. Right. We didn't understand that it excluded things like, are you able to manage your activities of daily living to some degree? So doctors have said to me, oh, okay, well, I thought the person was partially disabled because they could still do those things, but they could not work. Therefore, I may have said that to the insurance company, which, of course, is not correct. So if you do have a claim and you or if you're planning to submit a claim, understand that the phrase total disability means that you cannot work. That's what it refers to. Whether you're able to do other things, of course, that does play a role, but it doesn't mean that you're completely incapable of doing anything. And uh, it's it really is a great term that was brought about by the insurance. Because, you know, if you were to go out on the street, Martin, as we've discussed on the show before, and, you know, stop 20 people on the street and say, could you describe what totally disabled means to you? And they're going to give you the definition of, oh, someone who's, who's bedridden, they may be a quadriplegic, they can't feed themselves, possibly can't get up to use the bathroom, uh, dress themselves. That's, quote unquote, totally disabled to them. But as you just illustrated, in the context of long-term disability, it's not even close to that, right? So it's, uh, it's a really smart, whoever came up with it, brilliant, brilliant in the industry. Exactly industry. that. Right. And you know what, when people have a claim where they feel they no longer can work and their doctors support them, and they see this phrase total disability, they already feel, you know, overwhelmed, somewhat intimidated. They think that this is this massive mountain that they have to climb because I'm not totally disabled. I just right. cannot work. So right. it is unfortunate that, that, that there is that phrase, but you know, again, this is why we do this. We try to educate people to understand that they have knowledge and knowledge is power and that will allow them to hopefully with confidence be able to navigate this process. Again, reaching out any time, which you were invited to do uh, to Martin and his team, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. And we're talking about, uh, you know, things you may ensure uh, may not tell you, may not have told you. Number two is this, in LTD policies, the test for uh, total disability is an inability to work in your own occupation versus your own job. That's going to confuse people. What does that mean? It is going to confuse people. And again, I'll incorporate something where I had a discussion with somebody this week exactly about this issue. You may find yourself in a position where at the employer, they may have had some restructuring. They may have laid off some people. You may now have to do the work of, in your mind, two people or even three people. There are new deadlines. You're working yourself to a bone where you're working 60 to 70 hours a week, where you normally would just have to work 40 hours a week, you're not getting the support that you feel you need, you're starting to feel burnt out, and you feel that you cannot perform the duties of your job. Then you submit a claim to the insurance company and you explain to them, this is what happened at work. I cannot do this job anymore at that location for this employer because they've just overwhelmed me completely. Mm. Or it may be, that you find that there is a new supervisor or a colleague, somebody with whom you have a personality clash. And that person sometimes may be harassing you or bullying you, or even a team of people may be bullying and harassing you. To the extent that you find that your mental health has become so compromised that you cannot work anymore. You give all this information to the insurance company and you go out because you want to prove how bad things were for you before you stopped working. And the more you focus on how bad it was at that company 
with your employer at that location, the higher the likelihood is that the insurance company is going to turn around and say to you, okay, we understand that you have got some symptoms now because maybe it's a burnout, maybe it's stress, maybe it's depression. But you know what? We're testing whether you are unable to perform the duties of your occupation, not your job. So if you're able to work in your occupation for a different employer where you don't where you're not required to work the 60 to 70 hours a week, or you are not exposed to somebody who is creating further stress, who's not bullying you, who's not harassing you. If you're able to do this occupation at a different location or for a different employer, you're not disabled. And many people step in this trap weekly. Again, I had this discussion with somebody and I tried to explain the more you go out and prove in your mind that this job site, this employer led to me being unable to work because they created so much stress for me. The focus that you have to have here is if all of that happened, is it not so then that you now have a mental health disorder? You've been diagnosed with anxiety or depression or PTSD or whatever it may be. And in order to return to work, even at a different location or for a different employer performing the same occupation, you first need to be treated in order to recover from that condition. Unless it is your position that just give me, just put me in a different location or just put me with a different employer and I can easily perform my occupation because people have said this to me. And then I say to them, well, then you're probably not disabled within the meaning of the policy. Because, again, the test is you have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of your occupation. Some policies even say that the test is, the definition is, you cannot, you are totally disabled because you have an illness or a condition that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your occupation for any employer in any setting. Some policies even say that. Others are interpreted that way. So you have to be careful look at what is my occupation because of my illness, whether it was created by my work or through somebody at work, doesn't mean that I cannot perform my occupation versus my own job. Because if it's only going to be limited to my own job, you very likely are going to be denied. By the yes, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's, if you can't work in the old workplace, it's, you know, we often refer to it, you know, kind of tongue in cheek that it's, it's disability insurance, not bad boss insurance. Right. So to your point, it's, you know, if the workplace changes, it's a different story, but you know, maybe a wider, uh, a wider scoping thing than that, where it is actually your occupation. And it doesn't matter if you're here or across the street, you can't do your job. You're totally disabled. Therefore you qualify for your, uh, your benefits for sure. We have three more of those to go. We're talking about the five things to know about LTD that the insurer may not have told you. So we got a couple more. In fact, three more of those to go on our list. And then we'll dive into your email. By the way, that is help at disabilityrights.ca or use the phone number to call Martin and his team anytime we're not doing the show. That is 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back. The Disability Law Show continues. Martin Willems is your guy reaching out to Martin, a fantastic lawyer with a fantastic team behind him at Sam Firu to Mark and LLP. It is one 821 
5,900. I mean, if, you, if you're wondering, just to pick up a phone and ask him a few questions, have a chat, it's not going to cost you anything. Information is key and always willing to uh, spread it around and make you that much smarter. In addition to listening to the show every week, you'll always learn lots by uh, calling Martin or emailing him as well. That works. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We are talking about five things. There could have been 500 things, but five things today in the show uh, about LTD that the insurer may not have told you. Number three, in the any occupation phase, any occupation does not literally mean any occupation. Let's clear that up, shall we? Yeah, we want to sing this from the mountaintop. Yeah. Right? It, it, you need to know this. When you have a group policy, the group policy very likely will have two definitions for total disability. The first one is you have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation or your regular occupation. At some point, that definition is going to change. For most people, under most group policies, it is after two years of LTD benefits have been paid in the own occupation period. For others, it may be one year. I've seen ones where it was three years, but generally it's two years. When it gets to this next phase, the definition is you have to prove that because of your illness or your injury or your condition, you are unable to perform the essential duties of any occupation, any other occupation. And people, again, feel overwhelmed by this because they are lay people. They don't know the inner workings of these policies and now insurance companies actually adjudicate them or rather should be adjudicating them. Any occupation has qualifications. So what does that mean? You have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of any other occupation for which you have the transferable skills. In other words, based on your education, your training and your experience. And very importantly, something that would pay you what is referred to as a commensurate wage. Now, what does that mean? In some policies, under the definition of any occupation, it will have a percentage. And it may say that any occupation for which you have the transferable skills by means of your education, your training, and your experience, that will pay you 60% or 70% or 75% of your pre-disability income. If the policy is silent on that, in other words, if there is no percentage given, then we default back to the common law position, which would be something which pay you roughly two-thirds of your pre-disability income. So the any occupation phase is a more difficult thing to prove, but... It is not literally any occupation because many people think that. And I say, well, I can go work somewhere else, but what does that mean? If you were working as a neurosurgeon, to use an extreme example, can you, where you were earning a significant amount of money and this is what you've done all your life, is it then that you can, if you're able to work in a call center where you were making maybe 20% or 30% of what you were earning before, does that mean that you are now no longer disabled? No, it does not. So the higher your income, the more difficult it may become for the insurance company to say to you, well, we think you can go work in another occupation. This comes up a lot in mental health cases, right? So if you see somebody with anxiety and depression, they cannot perform the duties of the high executive position where you're working as a CEO, earning $300,000 a year gets to the any occupation phase. Now the insurance company is going to be difficult for them to say, well, you cannot do that job, but we think you go work in a job that's going to pay you $200,000 a year, right? And again, that's an extreme example, but it applies to everybody. If you had a, a much lower income still, 
If it's mental health, most people will have difficulty to focus, concentrate, multitask, comprehend new information, social withdrawal, panic attacks, etc. What occupation are you going to be able to perform with those things in place? It's going to be very difficult. So to anybody who's listening, if you are approaching the any occupation phase in your policy and the insurance company is becoming much more focused on looking at what is your education, what is your training, what is your experience, they, they may do something called the transferable skills analysis, mm -hmm. where they're going to find some job that may exist in this province or, or, or what province you may live in and say, well, we think this job is available. It doesn't have to be a job that's available to you. They don't have to find you a job. They're just going to say, we think that you can perform this occupation. It's, this is what it may pay. But they have to consider what your transferable skills are. If you've been working in a heavy labor occupation, all your life you've got a very bad back so you're limited you cannot do any heavy labor work you cannot do any heavy duties you're limited to potentially doing something that is sedentary in other words we may sit but even that is limited because of your bad back i've seen many cases like that where the insurance companies have denied people saying that okay well we're going to give you a four-week training course to um, do some computer courses and then we're going to deny you because we say now we have qualified you to go work in a sedentary occupation, which is, you know, to some degree, somewhat ridiculous, because yeah. the person has no education, they don't have other, in terms of some a job like that, a four week computer course is not going to allow them to work. And you're not considering that the fact that they have to sit may aggravate their back condition, may aggravate their, uh, their ability to focus to concentrate because of the pain. So it's a vicious circle. And many people are denied at this juncture. And they feel overwhelmed and they feel that maybe the insurance company is right. Maybe I can do this because they just say any occupation, right? It's literally something that I could do, anything, even though I don't have that experience. That's not how it is assessed. So the long and short of this is if you are denied because of a change of definition where the insurance company says you can work in another occupation, it is imperative, it is crucial that you reach out to us Review, so that we can review your claim with you, we can review the denial letter and the policy and your personal circumstances so that you can then make an informed decision as to how to proceed here. And remember, we offer these free consultations to people so that they can, again, make an informed decision. Martin, do you find in your experience that the, the main place where the insurance companies run foul is with the commensurate income piece of it, saying, oh, yeah, okay, you used to be a CEO, but, uh, you know, you, you know how to make an Americano. I mean, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a occupational, you know, earnings discrepancy there, like commensurate income levels. Is that where they trip up a lot of the time? I do see that happen a lot. And you know what? When when we get involved, sometimes we also go out and try and get opinions from experts mm -hmm. to assess whether the person can actually work in a commensurate occupation. Um, not just with respect to what are the restrictions and limitations, but if they have some capacity to work, then I want to know. What does that mean in terms of yeah. income? Is it going to bring them to the commensurate wage? And very often, it doesn't, let alone the fact that they're not capable of working in any event. And they've applied for CPPD, where they may have been approved as well. So yes, we see lots of cases tonight at that juncture based on exactly what you've just said. Five things to know about LTD that the insurer may not have told you. Number four, most group policies have what they call a, a recurrence provision. Break that down for me. This is important to understand. And again, speaking about things that have happened this week, I've spoken to people where they want to know, what does that mean? If I have become disabled, 
I've been away from work for 18 months. I'm going to start a graduate return to work, hopefully building myself up to full time. But my, my concern, my fear is, what happens if I'm unable to do that? What happens if I work for a few months full time and then I have to go off again? Because I close my claim. I'm so scared. What does that mean? Now, every policy, every group policy, or most of them, I always have to qualify this, most group policies will have what is called a recurrence provision. Mm -hmm. They don't all read the same, but this is the gist of it. If you've been off work for, let's say you're in the LTD phase, and you do return to work, and you're able to work, say, three months full time, and you go off again due to the same condition, that recurrence provision provides that if you do go off work within the first six months of returning, performing your full-time duties due to the same condition, it is a recurrence of the claim that you were on before. It's not a new claim, which means then that you do not have to submit a new claim. You do not have to satisfy the waiting period or the elimination period or the qualifying period, as it may be referred to, which may be four months, five months, or six months, whatever it may be. It is a recurrence of the previous claim. Many people, again, don't know that. So there's this concern, what if I fail? Now, if you do go back to work and you're able to work for, say, a year, and then go off due to the same condition, your policy very likely will not have a recurrence provision for that circumstance, and you may have to file a new claim. But... If you do find that you've returned to work and you're struggling, again, have a discussion with your doctor. This is important. I say this every week. Be in touch with your doctor during the graduated return to work phase on as a regular basis as possible and make sure that you report to your doctor the ongoing struggles that you have. If you have, if your condition is worsening or if you have new symptoms, because of your condition, and you find that you cannot maintain the return to work and you need to go off again, the insurance company is going to look at what do the records show? Did you see your doctor? Did you report to your doctor the worsening or the exacerbation of your symptoms? And if it is supported, hopefully they will approve the claim. But if not, that's why we are here, so that we can have that discussion with you and discuss what your options are moving forward. But you need to know on this point, they're very likely as a recurrence provision. And if you do return to work, ask your insurance company, please provide me with the recurrence provision so I know what I have to what I have available to me if I am unable to maintain my work after I've gone back to work. I think we got time to get number five in there, and that is the uh, the fifth one we're going to cover for the uh, the show today about things your insurance will not tell you. Your insurance uh, policy won't either. Well, it will, but if you don't look for it. Uh, with the exception of certain unionized employees, not all, pursuing an appeal is not your only option if your claim is denied. In fact, we'll go further and say probably not the one you want to use, right? Yes, and you know, when you get a denial, they generally will send it to you in writing. Sometimes they don't, they don't, and then you have to tell them, I want the denial in writing. I want to understand why you've denied my claim, and I want to know what my options are. So the insurance company, when they send out these letters, they may give you a brief description of the denial, and then say to you, these are your options, and they will detail the appeal process. And at the bottom of the letter, they may say to you, we have to tell you, because legislation now requires them to do this, that there's something called a limitation period, and that's the timeline within which you can pursue a, a legal claim. It may use wording referring to the Insurance Act. Lots of people have no clue what it means. But the appeal process is detailed in there. So 
the message to anybody listening is, if your claim is denied, number one, reach out to us so we can discuss it with you. But number two, understand that you do not need to engage in this process, the appeal process, with the exception of certain unionized employees where it is a mandated process. Right? But for most people, it isn't. You can choose how you want to proceed with this. Remember, the appeal is a process where you are submitting further information to the same entity that already denied your claim. This is not an independent body. It's not a, at length, arm's length entity. It is the same entity that denied your claim. In some instances, some people do choose to do this, and they may be successful, only to be faced with a further denial six months down the road. So it really depends on what you want from this process, how you want to get, how you want to move forward with it, and if you do decide to pursue an appeal, there's something called a limitation period, which is the timeline within which you can pursue a legal claim. So you want to know what that period is. So if the denial is in place, as I said before. You can contact us and we can review what the appeal process would be if you did want to do that, which is we generally don't recommend, or what the limitation period is and how to pursue a legal claim. And with that, we'll get into a uh, quick break here, and then we've got a bunch of email to follow for the remainder of the show. So thank you in advance. If you sent one along, we'll get to that. And uh, to reach out to Martin and his team anytime, one 821 5900 And that email address, which we're about to use, is help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back, the Disability Law Show. Your host here, John Scholes and lawyer Martin Willems from Sam Firu to Mark and LLP. Reach out anytime to have a chat with Martin or his team. Won't cost you a cent to pick up a phone, ask some questions. Make yourself smarter. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for quick, concise, easy to understand, uh, you know, notations and 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 facts, FAQs about LTD. Go there. LTDFAQ.ca is a free and uh, an anonymous website provided to you. Okay. First email goes like this, Martin. I'm a fifty seven years old, and I've been on disability for four years with no chance of returning to work. The chronical medical conditions. I also collect CPP. I'm thinking of moving to a different province, but unsure whether the insurer would still provide my disability payments, seeing I would be living in another province. Also, any idea whether I would continue receiving CPP? Thank you very much. What do you think, pal? Good question. So as with every question, I always say, let's go see what that policy says. What does the policy provide? Because they do not all read the same way. Most policies will have some restrictions with respect to your travel out of the country. In other words, it may say you can be out of the Canada for 30 days, but anything longer than that, benefits may be terminated or may cease unless we have approved that absence. I haven't seen many policies where there would be a limitation with respect to somebody moving from one province to another one. But does that mean that the insurance company is not going to look at this and and it may raise some red flags? One of them may be that you're moving away from your place of employment, so it may show that you're not planning on going back to this employer in any event if you're moving away. And then they come up with all types of other reasons. Well, there's some motivational issues. You were never planning on going back to work, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing may be that if you do move away, remember under the terms of the policy, you also have to remain under the regular care of your 
doctor of a physician and follow through with appropriate treatment um, recommendations. So if you do move away, firstly, you want to look at the policy. Does it have any restrictions on that point? Secondly, if you do move away, you want to make sure that you continue to have a physician who you can see regularly and that the move itself hopefully will not interrupt your treatment regime, your treatment program. Make sure that you continue to see the doctor regularly if you can and make sure that you do follow through with that treatment regime. If the policy is silent on that point, hopefully the insurance company will not try and use some other reason to deny the claim because I think moving from one province to another one on the mere fact of it, does that allow the insurance company to deny the claim? I don't think so unless the policy says so, which I don't think it does. Um, also, any idea whether I would continue receiving CPP, which I'm assuming is CPP disability benefits because the person is 57 years of age. I'm going to say only 57 because they're not 68. So CPP disability benefits, unlike LTD, where you have an insurance company paying those benefits, CPP disability is not adjudicated on such a rigorous and ongoing basis. So once you're approved for CPP disability, it generally is payable to the age of 65, after which it transitions into regular CPP. The fact that you're moving from one province to another province should not have any effect on your entitlement to CPP disability benefits. Hope that answers that question. Got lots more to go here. Next one down the line, Martin. Uh, guys, I was diagnosed about seven years ago with autoimmune disease called lichen planus and lichen sclerosis. I have that for life. No cure for does that uh, give you the option of receiving long-term disability since I've been at my employment for 29 years. Wow. So not going to get better, but no cure. What do you think? Long time. So working for the same employee for 29 years, have been diagnosed with this condition seven years ago. Can you apply for LTD? Remember when we started the show earlier today, when I said it is important to have a diagnosis, but the most important thing is functional impairment. What are your restrictions? What are your limitations? What are your symptoms? Do they cumulatively prevent you from performing the essential duties of your occupation? What is the functional impairment in essence? So if you have these two conditions and you've had it for seven years, the insurance company may say, and I see this often and it frustrates me when, when I hear this, well, you've had this for a while. So why are you stopping working now? We know that you've shown that you're able to work for seven years. Completely ignorant of the position that or the reality that lots and lots of medical conditions are progressive in terms of the fact that the symptoms, the restrictions, and the limitations may become worse. And that by carrying on working, you may have you know, increased the progression. You may have sped it up. So it really comes back down to going to have the discussion with the doctor. Does your treatment provider, and if you've got an autoimmune disease like you have, probably seeing a rheumatologist as well, do these doctors support that you are unable to work? In other words, unable to perform the duties of your occupation. And if they support that, why is that? You will have to, in this instance, identify why you are stopping work now when you've had the diagnosis going back seven years. And if the records support and your doctors support that your condition has slowly progressed or it has significantly progressed over the last few years or months or whatever it may be, that is important information to share when you do apply for disability benefits. But the short answer is, by all means, yes, 
doesn't matter what the condition is really. It depends on what the functional impairment is. And if your doctor supports you, submit that claim. And if it is denied, you've heard me say this before, you reach out to us and we'll discuss your options with you. Yeah, does the, uh, does the length of employment, 29 years, make a big difference for them positively? You know what, at my end, I would look at that to say, well, this is somebody who clearly has a very, very good and strong work ethic. So why are they stopping now? It must be because something's preventing them from doing so. That after 29 years of employment, working hard with this condition, this person's capacity to do that has been compromised. So that's the way that I would look at that. Um, and the insurance company may push them to apply for CPP disability as well, right? Depending on where they will be in the process. If they've been working for 29 years and have contributed to the CPP plan, that may be another option here as well. But in, in terms of the 29 years, it tells me this person is a very hard worker. Let's take one more break, pal. We've got a few more emails to get to, so uh, we'll do that for sure. If you want to send one along anytime, even if it's not on this show, that's okay. Maybe on a future show, we always uh, stack them up and keep going from there. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. For any other questions, you can type on your phone, tablet, desktop, whatever you like, and it's anonymous again, searchable as well to see if your question has been asked previously or one very similar. And that website is mydisabilityquestions.com. We read those on the show as well, so you can uh, send those along anytime as we continue after a short break here with more of the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we are back with the Disability Law Show. Your guy is Martin Willems. Reach out anytime. He's always ready for that phone call. Have a chat. Won't cost you anything to pick up a phone and say, hey, I got a problem with this. What do you think? That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. Next email. No, you know what? We're going to go to mydisabilityquestions.com. I just mentioned that website. It says, Martin, I'm on LTD for health reasons after one year on uh, STD, short term and get paid 65% of my regular income. In May, June, I will get uh, hand surgery. Will this get me back into short term for the uh, time of recovery? About six months. I'm going to email you about this directly. What do you think? Okay, so this is an interesting question. So let's break it down. The person went on short-term disability, as they say, for health reasons. Then that transitioned into long-term disability, where the insurance company accepted that they were unable to perform their duties and have been on long-term for one year, getting 65% of the regular income. So what that means is when you're receiving long-term disability, it's never 100% of your pre-disability income. It normally is a percentage, and it really depends on the policy. How good is that policy? Does it pay you 70%? Does it pay you 60%? In this case, it pays 65%, roughly two-thirds of the person's regular income. Now the question is, in May or June of this year, this person is going to have hand surgery. I'm not sure whether this is related to the same condition, the same uh, disabling condition, or whether it's something different. If the insurance company continues to support that they are disabled up until the date of the surgery, there's no basis for a new claim. I'm not sure if the person is thinking that because it may be an entirely different condition that there's a new claim that can be filed. And I understand why, because short-term disability would pay more than long-term, right? It's normally a higher percentage. 
so I can understand why this business is saying, is this going to result in a short-term disability claim for my period of recovery? Because likely they'll get more money from this. Unfortunately, that's not how this will work. Unless it is that the insurance company denies your claim, you are no longer disabled within the next few months. Then you have the surgery, which is entirely unrelated to your current condition, and then you can apply for a new claim. That is an option. But if, if it is that you continue to be on LTD, which appears to be the case here, and that LTD claim continues to the date of the surgery, whether it's a related or unrelated condition, it doesn't matter because you're already approved for, for long-term disability. And there's no basis for a new claim to be submitted. I hope that clarifies. But if you do have any further questions, have you said you wanted to email us directly? By all means, you're welcome to do so. And we can have a chat with you. Again, we do that on a free consultation basis. I'm sure that email is uh, is on the way for sure. Next one uh, here says, guys, I'm 62, starting LTD in May of 2024, so coming up here in a couple months. Can my employer force me to apply for CPP, Canada Pension Plan Disability? My uh, financial planner advised me not to apply for CPP until I'm 65. I'm not sure about that advice, Martin. What do you think? Okay, so 62 at this point, LTD commencing May of 2024. Can your employer force you to apply for CPP? I'm not sure whether this person is asking the question in the sense that he's thinking it's the employer or the insurer who's going to force him. Is it the employer? I don't see any basis for an employer to force somebody to apply for CPP. Um, The financial planner has advised not to apply for CPP until 65. I understand why that may be the case because they're thinking about regular CPP from looking at this. There is something called CPP disability benefits, which is entirely different. And I think this person is likely not aware of that. So when you start long-term disability in May of 2024, that would be under the own occupation phase of your policy. When it transitions in, let's say it's two years, um, to the any occupation phase, at that point, you may want to be looking at applying for CPP disability benefits, which is not your regular CPP. I think the concern here is if the person were to apply for CPP now, it would be at a reduced rate. But we're not speaking about regular CPP. And you probably much, there's no basis to apply for regular CPP. Is there a basis to apply for CPP disability benefits? Possibly, but that's a discussion that you should have with your doctor it may strengthen your case but on the other end of the scale remember cpp disability benefits form what is described as an offset a deduction from your long-term disability benefit amount lots of people say to me well i don't want to apply for cpp why should the insurance company get the benefit of that well if you do get it it is a deduction but at least you then have the government supporting as well that you cannot work in any occupation based on your condition, and that it is severe and prolonged. Now, CPP disability benefits are taxable, and to offset that, you may then want to have an application submitted for a disability tax credit to to CRA, which may alleviate some of those tax consequences. So these are all questions and discussions, I think, that you should have with your doctor. Does the doctor support a CPP disability application? And more importantly, I think you would also want to have a discussion with us. So one of... um, my members on the team could discuss with you what is the consequence of applying for CPP disability and explain to you what CPP disability is. Because looking at this question, 
I think this person is thinking about regular CPP, which you should not apply for, I agree. Look at CPP disability, and we'll explain to you how that works. Isn't there also the benefit, uh, which you know, which we've mentioned on the show before, that you know it's arguably a tougher test to uh, to uh, qualify for CPP? So, you know, if the insurance company gives you any flack about cutting you off or not being qualified, you're like, hey, CPP is tougher, and they said yes, and I'm in their fold. They're paying me, so what say you? Type of thing, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, it, it the definition for CPP disability is you must have a condition that is number one severe number two, prolonged, and number three, to the extent that it prevents you from working in any gainful occupation. That's a difficult thing to prove, right? So if you do submit that evidence through the support of your doctor and the, and the service candidate accepts it, yes, you can say to the insurance company, look, even the government is accepting this, and you're getting the benefit of it because you're deducting it. So, if you, And of course, if you're going to deny me, I'm going to take you on. I'm not going to accept that denial because I have been approved for CPP disability, and you should carry on paying me. That is definitely an argument. So I say to people who reach out to me and ask this question, yes, the insurance company can deduct it, but on the other end of the scale, you have the federal government through Service Canada supporting that you cannot work, supporting your position, supporting your doctor's position. The only one that may not be doing it is the insurance company, and that's where we come in to fight them. And with that, we are, uh, we're wrapping it up. Thank you so much for all the contributions to the show, your emails and everything else in mydisabilityquestions.com. That's also an avenue you can take to ask your questions. And that email address we use every show, you can continue that now and get to answers from Martin and his team uh, when we're not on air, help at disabilityrights.ca. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. And the phone number, call it. Ask some questions for nothing. It won't cost you a penny to pick it up. one 821 5900. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.